February is the month of love, so welcome to part one of our relationship series called Relational Reboot. And so we're calling it that. I'll kind of explain it as we go into part one a little bit more. But the idea is here in the month of love and the month of relationships, a lot of times some things will kind of get out of whack or out of order. And we need to reboot some things. That's a term uh, some of you may know, some of you may not. But you kind of get the general idea of it. That we need to reboot some things in order for them to go maybe a little bit more right this time. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. Go ahead and grab out something to take some notes with. Because we believe when we study God's word, when we study it together as a church, God will speak to us. We can jot some things down. Uh, If we're going to learn and grow during this relationship series, we need a solid foundation. We've got to have a solid, something we can build on. And I want to show you all throughout this morning how the devil is working overtime to destroy your relationships. How he's trying with all of his might. And so it's so important that we have a good base, that we have a good foundation for our relationships. But the devil is trying to destroy that. And I want to illustrate uh, both that point and our sermon series with a story and a picture. And so I'm going to start with the story. And don't worry, because I never tell long stories, right, everybody? I never, ever launch into long monologues. But I just want to explain to you, because my wife and I, my beautiful wife, Alyssa, and I have been married for 10 years now. Come on, somebody. And we made 10 years... And you will wonder how that is true in just a moment, all right? You will, you will start, to, start to question how that happened. Because shortly after we got married, uh, we got married in January of 2012. And so shortly after we got married, we decided we were going to take a budget backtra- backpack tour across Europe. And if you've never heard of this kind of thing, basically we saved enough money to get us there and enough money to get us back. And then throughout the thing, you just sleep in train and trains and hostels and buses and wherever you can find a place to sleep. And we were told that this would be an amazing adventure and you would grow romantically close together. We were told. And so if I could just come advice to all you young people in the room, like go to the all-inclusive resort, stick your feet in the sand, hold hands, and I promise you it will do more than backpacking across the former Soviet Union. I, I just, I, I can't tell you, I have no better advice than that this morning, all right? That is all I could tell you. Well, the day of the story, we had just been dropped off in the city of Istanbul. And so we had actually, we had kind of had to scramble. A train had derailed in Bulgaria. And so we had to pay like five bucks to get on a bus to cross the border. And so they had customs every 30 minutes. So there was no sleep. They dumped us off at four in the morning on the city outskirts. That's what five bucks buys you, everybody. And so now we have to kind of scramble to get into the city. And we had our next plane. Our next little hot plane was coming out of that city, going to Tbilisi, Georgia. And the problem was, is now the budget aircraft that I had scheduled for us, come on everybody, I love budget aircraft, didn't fly out of the normal airport. They had their own little runway they had constructed on the edge of the city. Nobody really wanted them near the real planes. And so they had them on the other side. We had to get there. We had about eight hours to get there. Now, this is 10 years ago. I didn't have dual SIM cards in my phone. There's no, you know, ultimate data plan that I have. We're on a budget. You understand this. And so I had a couple of pictures I had taken of the city that I could kind of scroll in and try to see some things. I didn't think we'd be there very long. And so in my little pixelated version of Istanbul, the airport was here and we were here. And it was only about two inches, everybody, just about two inches. And so how far could that possibly be? And so I said, hey, it's only a couple of inches. We got eight hours till our flight. We're going to walk this thing. We're going to save some money, get some exercise at the same time. And my beautiful wife said, I don't think that's accurate. And I said, nah, you don't know. I know I messed up the train and I know I messed up the plane, but I know this is right, all right? The airport is right over that hill. And so we started to walk and walk and walk. 
somewhere around mile two, you ever have that moment where you know what someone else is thinking without them even having to speak? You ever have spouses, you know what that's happening right there, about mile one, mile two? I'm just mind reading. This is the closeness they were talking about, right? I just know exactly the thoughts that are being thought. About mile three or mile four, we started getting verbal, everybody. It started... I wanted to go back to the mind reading. We started, you know, you book this and who did that? And you do it's distinct in my brain around mile five or mile six. I'll never lose the image. We're walking out in the middle of nowhere. There's this big highway, about five lanes, cars zooming by, but there is no other building in sight. And Alyssa has gone up. She's walking up on the hill. She doesn't even walk next to me anymore. And this guy pulls his car over and starts shouting at us in Turkish, something about, you know, being on the side of the road. I don't know what he's shouting. And I just lost it. I'm shouting at him. I'm shouting at her. I'm just losing my mind. Mile seven, mile eight. About mile nine, we ran out of water, everybody. All right. And so that was just about mile 11. We started looking up marriage annulment. What are the rules for marriage? <laughs> So mad you can spit, but that would waste water. So you don't, you don't do this mile. 12 miles we walked, everybody, from the edge to the airport. 12 miles we walked so mad. At it. So we stumble up to the airport, and they don't even have a door for foot traffic. Like, it's just cars. They have no security lines, so we just kind of walk on in. Because nobody, middle of nowhere, nobody walks here ever. Walk on in. We get inside this airport. We are ready to rumble. It is time for a fight. Come on, somebody. So we finally roll up in there. Now, there is one cafe in this airport. So we go there, and I walk up and try to get us some water and some food. And she goes and sit, and I come back and pull out my phone, and there is Wi-Fi at the end of the world. There is just... And so I snap a picture, and we post it online. And here is the picture, everybody. And the caption of this picture, in case you saw it 10 years ago, the caption of this picture was making new memories. <laughs> now we're going to make some new memories when my wife finds out I told this story today. So it's going to be great. I tell all of that to let you know everything you see on social media, everybody, is not real. Now, it is true. It is true. There were memories made that day. And they were new memories. We will never forget them. I will never be allowed to forget them. There were, there were some good lessons learned and some good memories. But what I want you to see is everything you're seeing on social media and on all these platforms and everywhere else is not real. Or if it is, it is heavily filtered, everybody. It is heavily, heavily filtered. There were some memories made on that day. <laughs> But it's not the, not the picture you would expect. It's not the story you would expect out of the picture. And so oftentimes in our relationships, oftentimes we are trying to have authentic relationships or authentic marriages in a heavily filtered world. And it just doesn't work. We're trying to have authentic relationships and friendships. We're trying to have these authentic ways of doing life together in small group and all the rest. But we're trying to do it in the midst of a heavily filtered world that culture has tried to convince us we also need to live by, that we also need to do. And at the core of it, the problem with all of that is we are drawing our identity based on the filter. We are seeing all of these different moments that people are carefully crafting and filtering for us to see. And then we're trying to draw our identity out of it and how we should be or how we should live. And it's not only social media, everybody. Everybody puts up that facade. Oftentimes we get a glimpse of that. 
We get a glimpse of what it might be or what life, what they, we think they're living like, and we draw our identity from it. I just want you to know it's a trap, everybody. The devil's working overtime to destroy your relationships, to get you to measure yourself against whatever it is you see that's filtered already 15 different ways, and then measure your life against it. And too often times, we don't even like the reality of ourselves. We won't even put a picture of ourselves up unless it's been filtered 16 different ways and retouched and shown up and, you know, run through three different people, make sure they approve of the angle and the shot and the lighting. And then maybe we'll post it online. And if it doesn't get enough likes in the first 24 hours, we will take it back down, right? We need to have that affirmation. But too often times in our lives, we base our belief and our identity on this filter. Well, listen to me, everybody. Reality is what, get, what you actually get when you raise kids. Reality is what you actually get when you're in an authentic relationship. Reality is what you actually get when you're married. All the married people say amen, everybody. That's what we actually get is reality. Today, we're going to talk about how do we fix this fundamental issue in life? How do we get the right basis for our marriages, for our friendships, for our relationships, for all of these things in our life? How do we have this relational reboot? How do we address the issue in culture? So we're going to go first to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to show you a verse because I want to show you that this is not a new problem. This is something the devil's been trying to work into the church for thousands of years. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, We do not dare to classify ourselves or to compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves. That sound familiar to anybody else? When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves... They are not wise. Read that part with me. Go back to that. It says, they are not wise. Come on, say it one more time with me. They are not wise. The Bible says if you start to compare yourself, you start to commend yourself based on everybody around you, you start to do this, classify and compare, you are not wise. Now, that's a kind way of saying you are a fool if you compare yourself like this. And so I want to study this. Let's back it up to verse 12 because he's trying to say this is a terrible place to do this is a terrible place to draw your identity in comparing yourself to those around you this is an awful place to draw your identity in comparing yourself to the filtered world that we live in and now devil's been doing it for thousands of years even back in the early church hey guys it's probably not a good idea to compare yourselves against each other and even more so today i told you he's been doing it for so long he's gotten really good at it because we would read this and say yeah that makes sense and yet we do it every single day we compare and we classify. And so the word classify there, we're going to kind of look at this in parts because I want you to understand this verse. The word classify there in the Greek, it means to add to a class or to have a class or to create a grid of classification. It means that we're going to have this grid that where does everything in my life, every person, how do they fit into this? And honestly, we're pretty terrible at it. Guys, especially, what's the first thing we do when we meet another man, another guy? We ask them, what is it that you do? What do you do for a living? What, what do you do? And most of the time we're doing it to be nice, but subconsciously we're thinking, how do you fit into my view of the world? Are you a very important person? Are you not a very important person? Are you, are you very important with lots of zeros after your name? Are you not important with not so many zeros after? Like what kind of person are you? And we start to go even further. Are you athletic? Are you not athletic? Uh, are you wealthy? Are you not wealthy? Are you in shape? Are you just a shape? Come on, somebody. Are you just... We... <laughs> We classify people. Are you tall? Are you short? We, we begin to beg, where do you fit into my view of the world? Where do you fit? And typically, if we lose one of those competitions, we go straight to the children, right? Are my children more athletic than your children? Because I'm going to vicariously live out all of my failed dreams through my children. Come on, somebody, you know what I'm talking about. 
Are, are this, what, what kind of sports do you got? Do you guys play? Oh, you play sports. That's great. We also play sports. Oh, you're that. What kind of sport do you play? Oh, you play basketball. We love basketball. What team are you on? Oh, you're on the rec league. Oh, that's cute. You just, we play travel. We're travel. And we think that sounds important, but really what it means is somebody else sets our weekend schedule. That's what that means, everybody. Like somebody else is in charge of our lives. We're just the shuttle service. That's what that, what that means. We do it spiritually too. We need to classify. It's like it's ingrained in us by culture. We have to classify. And oftentimes we let that junk come in the church. How long have you been a Christian? Oh, you're a baby Christian. Oh, that's just so cute. How long have you been at Victory? Because, you know, I've been at Victory since we had plants on the stage. Come on, somebody. I just, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, you came when we floated the pews out during the flood. Oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Oh, you remember the day spring room? That's cool. Oh, oh you came after the pandemic. You're new. Oh, that's cute. Welcome. We classify. We say, where do you fit into my view of the world? Where do you? How long have you been at the church? Oh, do you serve at the church? Because, you know, we serve and we go to outreach. Do you go to outreach? And we lead a small group and we go to a small group and we're on the team and we serve in all the and we do that. And we we classify and we do it in our spiritual lives. We want to know, where are you on the grid? And Paul says, not only do we not classify, we also don't compare. Now, that word compare after we've got our grid, that word compare now means to add the information to it. And so it's the idea that now I'm going to take my life. My marriage, my kids, my relationships, my career, all of my things. Now I'm going to put those up on the grid and see how I compare against you. So we classify. We have all of those things. We, we need to know where everything and everyone in our lives fits. But then we compare and we start to put ourselves now into the information. Where do I measure up to? I'm going to compare my life against you. And here's what happens when we compare. And that is when I compare, I compete. That when I compare, automatically competition begins in my life. And here's why this is so incredibly toxic when it comes into our relationships. Because every time that I compete, it creates winners and it creates losers. And now anybody under the age of 25 is saying, what? Pastor, we are all winners. I know what you're saying isn't true because I have lots of participation trophies. Throw them in the garbage, everybody. All right, go ahead. And just put, I will die on that hill. Participation is not trophy worthy, all right? There are winners and there are losers in competition. Tonight when you watch the Super Bowl, there will be a winner, praise the Lord, and there will be a loser. When we compete, there are winners and there are losers. And it is fantastic for the sports world. When we bring it into our relationships, it becomes toxic. Because every time we classify and compare, we compete. And when we compete, there are winners and there are losers. And somehow it gets worked into our life and our relationships that I need to beat you in order to live fulfilled. That I somehow have to come out on top in our my relationships to somehow be fulfilled. Because when you compete, there are winners and there are losers. And this is what the devil's trying to trick you into bringing this into your relationship, bringing this into your friendships, bringing this into your marriage, God forbid. That we have this idea that I need to compete That somehow your success cost me something. And that somehow your failure would benefit me in some way. You bring that toxic mess into your marriage, it will be destined to fail. You bring that garbage into your relationships with your friends, I promise you it will be destined to fail. Because in your marriage, it's not you versus one another. It's the both of you. God has placed you together against whatever the world would bring against you. You're supposed to stand, the Bible says, the two become one in your relationships, in your friendship. You're supposed to be together in harmony. 
And too often times we bring this toxic mess of I need to somehow beat you in order to fulfill my life. I need to somehow come out on top. And see, here's what happens in this, because there aren't winners and losers, everybody, in marriage. If anybody in a marriage is losing, everybody is, is losing. You understand that, right? And the problem is that we have in these competitions is then if I win, it creates pride. If I do this classification in this comparison and then the winners of this competition that we've created in our minds, somehow the winners then become prideful. Oh, I didn't know that I was better than you. Oh, I had no idea that I made more money than you. I had no idea that I was just such a better human being than you are. I won. I'm prideful. Hallelujah. I'm just, I'm just better. And we don't say it like that, but we think it like that, everybody. I had no idea that I was the winner of this competition. How good I feel about myself. Like the guy in Luke chapter 18. He goes into the temple that Jesus is talking about. And he says, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Now, I am 100% sure that none of us have said this out loud in church, but I am equally confident that we have all thought it. God, I thank you that I am not other people. God, I thank you I'm not that person. And I point over here where no one is sitting. You understand that? God, I thank you that I'm not like those people. God, I thank you I don't have that family. God, I thank you I'm not raising those kids. Praise the Lord. We'd never act like that. Praise the Lord, God, I think how terrible they are. Thank you, God. You didn't make me like them. And he goes on to say, watch this, or even like this tax collector. This guy who's standing next to him, he said, robbers and evildoers, adulterers, even this tax collector. I thank you, Lord, that I am so great. You know, his religious arrogance saying, I fast twice a week. I tithe. I give a tenth. I serve. I'm here in church praying. Look, oh God, how great I am. As in his religious pride and arrogance, don't judge people because they sin differently than you. Never judge someone because they struggle with something that maybe you don't struggle with. The Bible says we all are sinners, yet in our religious arrogance, we somehow think we can judge somebody else because they sin differently than we do. We think we can bring out the judgment. He sins in his religious pride. But see, in the church, we love to judge people who sin differently. It's like a pastime for the church. We call up so-and-so. Hey, you know, you need to pray for so-and-so, which is church code for I'm about to gossip. I'm about to get all that. I got something juicy I'm about to tell you. You need to pray, oh, Lord, and let me just tell you what you need to pray about. And we go through our list that we keep by the phone. Like, this is just... Now, before we stop praying for everybody in our lives, let me just say, in relationship, when you actually care and are in a relationship with somebody... There is accountability there and there is something that we do as we strengthen and iron sharpens iron. There is a place for that where we're praying for others who do. But too often times in the church, you need to pray about this turns into let me just air all the dirty things I heard about that person. Did you hear about so and so? I heard about so I heard their kids are on drugs and they're just living in the world. And I heard they just the marriage ain't doing too good and they haven't been back to church since the covid. And I just don't know. You know, I don't know what's going on over there. We need to pray. In our religious arrogance, too often times. And we'll call them over. Hey, you need to come see. I saw they're just out there doing it. And you know what? I think he still smokes. I think it's big. I think that guy still. I think he smells like hell and he's going there too. Come on, somebody. Just, I, just, I, just, I just don't know what this world just sinners. I just, we need to pray. We need to, I can't believe. As in our selfish, I can't believe they have no self-control. As we pull up to Wendy's. Yeah, I'll take four Baconators and five large fries. And a Diet Coke, praise the Lord. I just. 
Because in our religious arrogance, we judge those around us. The Bible says it's not. <laughs> it's going to go good today, everybody. I'm feeling it today. It's just silly. It's pride. It's arrogance. It's religious pride. When we create this competition and somehow we get this false idea that we're winning, we get this pride in our heart. We begin to think things like, well, we think I have issues, but they are sinful. They're the ones in sin. I'm just the one working through some stuff. I just got to, the Lord's going to help me work through some stuff. They are the ones living in sin. It's pride, everybody. Then sometimes we lose. And when we lose, it creates insecurity and jealousy. We get jealous of other people. It's tough because we think their success is costing us something. That somehow them being blessed is taking something away from us. This story in the Old Testament, a story of warning, actually, where David and Saul, after David's killed Goliath, they come back now and all the people are singing in the streets. They're having this cheerleading. Hoorah, they're getting off the plane, right? They just destroyed Goliath. And Saul hears the people singing and here's what he hears. Watch this in the next one. They come out to meet them in the next verse. And he's saying and dance for joy and watch in the next what they say. They say, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Now, David just killed Goliath at this point. You understand that, right? And David is loyal to Saul. And David is, is, this should have been one of Saul's crowning moments to have such a person as David in his army, to have such a person as David who would loyal and following him. But watch what Saul does. When he hears this, he Saul's very angry. He said, what's this? They credit David with tens of thousands and me with only thousands. What's this? That's how, what's this? And they watch this. And now they'll be making him their king in security. Insecurity. Now watch, from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Insecurity and jealousy. And what should have propelled Saul, and what should have actually built up his kingdom, was the thing that destroyed him. That he'd already disobeyed God, and now he spiraled out of control, and he realizes in this moment he has this insecurity and this jealousy. And it leads to all these other things in his life, if you read the story. And too often times when we compare and we compete and we put ourselves up on the grid, when we compete and we lose, we become jealous and insecure. We begin to look at the people around us and think, because they are being blessed, somehow that cost me. And somehow because you are having success, somehow it's, it's no longer. We get frustrated because we think people are going further and faster in life. And it's like I'm no longer being validated because so-and-so God. Or maybe you're single here on Valentine's Day and you're thinking, she got the only man on all the planet Earth. I just can't believe I'm the one who's been praying for a man. I can't believe she got. And we say, I want to celebrate her, but I'd rather eat her because it's just not fair. Come on, it's just not, it's just not fair. As if we, we, I was the one praying for the promotion. I was the one who was praying to get a house. I'm the one who was praying for that thing. I'm the, I, thought, I thought, God, you were going to bless me. As if God is saying, I only had one today. I'm sorry. I just, I like them better than you. I don't know what you want from me. I just, I had to bless them. I only had one. We somehow think your success comes at the cost of me. That somehow I can't celebrate you. We have no foundation. We should all ask ourselves this question. What is wrong in me that I can't celebrate you? What is wrong inside of me that I cannot celebrate you? What God is doing in your life. Why can't I celebrate your success? Why can't I look at what God is doing in your life and say, man, God's no respecter of persons. Praise the Lord. He's doing that in you. Maybe I'm next. Maybe God's got something for me. But in the meantime, I'm going to praise the Lord for the thing that God is blessing you with. Why can't we do that in our lives? We celebrate one another. We celebrate. Why is wrong in me that I can't celebrate 
you. I love seeing the blessing in your life. I love seeing how God is working in your life. I understand that he can bless you and me at the same time. But we don't do that. Too many times in our lives, we don't do that. So here we are. We're scrolling through our Instagram or our Facebook feed. And we're just engrossing ourselves, right? Just getting, getting in everybody's lives. And, and we come across a picture of so-and-so. And she got some brownies on the plate. And the caption says something like, waiting for the kids to get home from school. We're going to spend some quality time together. Now, what is it we don't do in that situation? Because too often times what we don't say is, praise the Lord. They're about to have some family time. Praise the Lord. Just, Lord, bless her and her kids. I just pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, be all up in that interaction. Give them transparency and honesty. Oh, Lord, just bless them. Lord, let them have a great time with their kids. I just That's not what we do. What do we do? We look at that picture and we go, must be nice to have time to bake brownies. Must be just, must be, must be nice. Must be nice to have time to, who's got time to cook? I ain't time to cook. Must be nice to have that. I bet she didn't even bake those brownies. Look at those things. Those things are perfect. Perfect little squares cut there on a plate. Just, but I bet she went to Target and put those on a plate and pretended, acted like she baked. I'm just, and you know what? Probably not even about the brownies or the kids. Not about that at all. Look at that angle. She took that picture because that, look, she tried to show off that new backsplash because they renovated during COVID. Come on. Look at that, and she took that thing. Lord knows it's not even about the kids, not even about the brownies. It's about that showing up. She makes me sick. Like. Hey, girl. Have fun with the kiddos. Catch up soon. It's not real, everybody. And we look at these things. We look at these moments. We look at that stuff. What's wrong in me that I can't celebrate you? It's all fake. And honestly, it's destroying church culture. This idea, this, this comparison, this trap, winners or losers, it's destroying us. It's either pride or it's jealousy. See, the devil wants to get you to base your identity. He wants to get you to base your foundation of relationship. He wants to get you to base how you view the world, your perspective through this lens of something that is completely filtered. And it's not authentic and it's not real. And it's destroying us. It's honestly why authentic and real relationships don't last anymore. That's why we can't have conversations face-to-face. We'll air all of our deepest, darkest secrets online, but then when it comes, we can't have a functional relationship face-to-face with somebody. We can't have a conversation with people anymore. We'll do it all online. We don't mind that at all. But when it comes to actual, authentic, and real relationships, we can't seem to have that functional thing. Devil's destroying our culture from the inside out. And the most toxic thing when we get in this competition, the most toxic thing that happens to us, is that suddenly our value is determined by this grid instead of by our God. We come to the culmination now. The value that we give ourselves, the identity that we draw, the base that we kind of live our life out of is now determined by the grid we have set up instead of by what our God has to say about us. And I promise you, it will destroy every relationship in your life. And you live your life feeling sad and depressed and feeling robbed as if somehow others are going further and faster than you are. 
And in our minds, it's never because they may be running a different race than us. It's never because they may be gifted and talented in different areas and have a different calling than us. It's always because there must be something wrong with us. There must be something that's wrong with us. There's no way that I could live my life for God anymore because they went further than I did in that area. And we let that toxic idea work into us. And there's no way. If we see the world through this lens, we've got to have the right identity, everybody. We've got to begin to take back this thing that's been stolen from us. Our identity is found in God and God alone. And so when we are in this place that we're trying to say, well, now my value is determined by the grid, we've got to reboot this thing. We've got to restart this thing. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12 for this last bit that we have together. In a couple of moments, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. We talked about this last week, kind of continuing the story in Hebrews. We talked about this cloud of witnesses in chapter 11 last weekend, that there were those who were literally sawed in half, those who gave their lives for the gospel. They are the cloud of witnesses now watching. And it says, because of that, Let us throw off all of this garbage that hinders us, everything that keeps us back and the sin that so easily entangles us. And then let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Three things I want you to see here. Number one, we need to personalize it. If I'm going to do this, if I'm going to live out the calling God has for my life, if I'm going to have the right identity, the right relationships, if I'm going to have the right foundation for this, I have to run my race. I have to run my race that God has called me to run. I have to understand that my race is not your race and your race is not my race. We have to run our own races that God has set out for us. That we have to stay on. In verse 1 says that this way, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. God has a calling for each and every one of you in this room. Everybody watching. God has a calling for your life. He has a race for you to run. But the devil would love to get up in your mind and have you try to run somebody else's race. That God has called us to run this race. Because one day we're going to slip from this life. All of us will stand before the God who created us. And we're going to give an account for the life that we lived. You're going to give an account for everything that you did. Everything that you said before your maker. And I will too. You know what's great? You know what I am so excited about when I get to heaven? God's not going to look at me and say, Ben, you know that, that Rick Warren wrote a really good book. And Ben, you know that Billy, that Billy Graham, he had a great evangelistic ministry, really did a lot of stuff for the And you know, Ben, even your grandfather, Samuel Doctor, and he did a lot of stuff for the kingdom, got a lot of people saved. So frankly, I'm kind of disappointed in you, son. Doesn't look like you did all that much. Doesn't look like you accomplished all that. No, when my Jesus is going to look at me and say, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with the talents and the giftings and the opportunities that I placed in front of you? What did you do with the things I put into your life? What did you do with what I gave you? And the same thing will be true for you. Everybody's running a race. I have to run mine. I have to stand before my God and give an account of the things. What I did with the talents that he gave me. What I did with the opportunities he put in front of me. Psalms 139, David says this. I praise you, Lord, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That phrase there, that wonderfully and fearfully, it means unique and it means in order to create a fear of God. That you have been created unique. You have been created one of one, everybody, that God has something for you to accomplish. God has placed something in your life in order for you to do. God has talent and gifted you with abilities to do something for the kingdom of God. And the devil would love to come in and steal. Listen, God made you to be original. The devil would love for you to die a copy. He would love for you to begin to get your eyes on somebody else. The quickest way you can lose running your race is to try to run somebody else's. 
to try to run their race, to look at somebody else and say, I want to do what they're, I, I just, I need to fit myself onto their track, begin to run their race. Devil would love for you to die a copy. Don't let the world try to tell you how to live, how to have relationships, how to raise kids, how to be married, how to dress, what to say, how to act. God has a race for you to run. God has purpose for your life. God has purpose for you to run. You got to run your race that God has marked out for you. First Corinthians, I love this verse. Paul writes to the church and he says, so run to win. He says in a race, everyone runs. One person gets the prize. So run to win. Now, I love and I hate that verse at the same time because I hate to run, but I love to win. Come on, somebody. I just, that's just my, my mentality. I love to get the prize. I love to compete and to win. And he says, so run to win. Now, this phrase would have been familiar to them because he's writing to the city of Corinth, run to win, run. And this is the site of the Isthmian Games. And so this is the site that it's kind of like the Olympics. This is where they would come and they would compete in all of these different prizes. And it was kind of like the Olympics, but they had a whole host of different competitions at the Isthmian Games. They'd have competitions in singing. They'd have all aspects of life. They'd have acting and theater. And then, of course, they'd culminate in the physical strengths. And it would all culminate in the foot race. And the way they would pump themselves up for the foot race, the way they would get themselves ready to go pumped up is they would go around each other saying, run to win, run to win. This phrase, they would say, run to win, run to win. It's how they would pump themselves up for the race. Now, they had a little bit of additional motivation because they all ran naked for some reason. And so I would definitely want to be first, everybody. I don't know if you... <laughs> it's terrible, it's terrible, all right. <laughs> run to win! Focus with me, everybody. Focus here. He says, all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. You know the race, the, the winner of the Isthmian Games, that foot race? You know what they would get? A piece of dried out reef of celery. That was the prize they would win. This worthless piece of dried It was literally, they were running for pride, everybody. They were running just to be able to say that they won because the prize they would win was so dismal. Paul is saying, that thing's not even going to last. It's not even, you get a piece of celery. It's literally because you wanted to win the race. They're not giving you gold. They're not engraving your name somewhere. You get this dried out piece of celery. So it's going to fall apart. It's going to waste away. But Paul is saying, even if it was gold, even if it was something, it's all going to fade away anyways. But we run to obtain an eternal prize. He says, we run, we obtain eternal. We do it to raise their prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I run with intentionality, Paul says, in every, because I go for a prize that's eternal. That's never going to fade away. I run, I run, I'm intentional. I'm making sure that I'm running the race God has called me to run. I'm going to live with intention. Listen to me, everybody. You don't live with intentionality. I promise you somebody else will set your schedule. If you don't live with purpose, I promise you somebody else will set your intentions. And they will not be what God's purpose is for your life. They will not be what God's intentions are for you to do in this life. They will be whatever allows that person to serve their own selfish ambitions. They'll be whatever allows them to sell you more product. If they're going to set your schedule, I promise you they will want whatever they are trying to put. It won't be what God has for your life. And so Paul is saying, I run with intentionality. I, I run with purpose in every step that I take to make sure I'm still on the track God has for me. To make sure I'm still running the race God has for me to run. We've got to find the race he has for us and run it in a way that we would win. But you need to know that I don't win by beating you. I win by being me. And that's not some new age, love yourself, kind of mamby-pamby. I need you to understand this, that if I'm going to win the race God has set out for me, I don't have to outpace you. 
If I'm going to win the race that God has set for me, I don't have to do something bigger or better than you. I have to be faithful to what my king has asked me to do. If I'm going to win my race, it's not about running faster than you're running. It's about doing what God has asked me to do. I don't win by beating you. I win by being me. By finding out what God has called me to do and then doing it. That's the race I've been called to run and it's the race you've been called to. Do you find out, God, what did you put me on this earth for? God, what is my purpose? And then you do that with all of your strength. Bible talks about the man with 10 talents, five talents, one talent. He gives them different talents, but then he asks them, what did you do with what I gave you? We got to run our race. One of the greatest ways you would lose your race is if you try to run somebody else's. And too often times we look at everybody, we say, how am I keeping up with the Joneses? What are they buying? What are they doing? What clubs are they a part of? What car do they drive? What neighborhood do they live in? We got to get our eyes off of that. Number two, I have to fix my eyes on Jesus. I'm going to run my race. I have to fix my eyes. Going back to our verse, chapter 12, he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. He says, now let us run our race. Let us cast off every hindrance. Let us not get our eyes on everybody else. Let us run our race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. But too often times what happens, we get our eyes fixed in our technology and we're using that as a window to fix our eyes on everybody else. And we say, well, I just got to see what they bought this weekend. I just got to see where they went this last season. I just got to see where they're skiing this year. And I just got, I, I got to see where they're living. And I, I got to, we get our eyes fixed on others instead of on Jesus. The Bible says we fix our eyes on him. Focus on Jesus. You want to have a great marriage in your life. Listen to me, single people. You don't have to crane your neck looking, looking around the corner, every room you walk in for Mr. Wright or Miss Wright. You don't have to break your neck looking around for all the sins. The Bible says when Adam was ready, God brought his spouse to him. You understand that? God brought Eve to Adam in the garden. God will bring you your spouse. You don't have to keep up, but you got to stay focused on Jesus. And if I could just, just pastor you for just a moment, you got to stay focused on Jesus. You got to begin to ask yourselves, and this is if you're looking for a spouse. If you're not looking for one, I bless you, God help you. But if you are looking for one right now, you keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Ask yourself that question. Am I the person that the person I'm looking for is looking for? Because too often times we are so buried in other people's lives that we become this toxic person. And we'll destroy whatever relationship we go into next. Because we can't get our eyes fixed on Jesus. It says stay focused because the Bible says this in Acts 17. It says for in him we live and move and have our being. Our own poets have said we are his offspring. It says in Jesus we live, we find our essence of life. It's in him we live, it's in him we move, it's in him we act and have our being. It's in Jesus that we fix our eyes. Too often times we want to get our eyes off of that. We want to focus on others. We want to focus on being accepted. We want to focus on what are they doing and how can I be a part of that. Instead of fixing our eyes on Jesus and the race God's called us to run. Number three, we have to trust Jesus with our pace. We're going to fix our eyes on him. We're going to run our race, but we have to trust him with the timing of our lives. Because too often times we see someone else going further and faster and we think, well, God has forgotten about me. Somebody else being blessed at a different stage in their life or a different season. And we thank God, why haven't I arrived at that season yet? But part of this is trusting Jesus with our pace. If we come back to the truth of God's word, I would know it's actually impossible to be outpaced by you because you're running a different race than I am. It would actually be impossible to be outdistanced by you because you're running a completely different race. And I'm going to celebrate what God is doing in your life, but I'm not going to compare mine against it. Somehow I have to do something bigger and better at every stage in order to be accepted by God. God has called us to run a race. He's given us a purpose in our lives. 
Our text one last time, it says, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who started it. He's the one who will perfect it. He's the one in his timing who decides. And honestly, this goes back to what we talked about last week and the week before, trust. I got to trust Jesus with my pace. I have to say, even if I'm not seeing the season I think I should be seeing, even if I feel like God has forgotten me because he's blessing somebody else, even if I feel like I'm being out distance, I have to trust him and know that he wants what's best for me, that he has my best intentions in mind, that I've surrendered all at the foot of the cross and I find my identity in him and him alone. And so I will wait and I will trust him with my pace. I will trust him with the speed that I'm running this race. One of my favorite verses comes out of Exodus 23 as we close. The nation of Israel is about to take on the promised land. About to be one of the greatest land transactions in the history of the world. They're going to get cities they didn't build. They're going to get crops they didn't plant. God's about to bless his people. And he comes to them right before they're about to take it. And he speaks to them in this verse. And he says of their enemies, he says, but I will not drive them out in a single year. Watch what he tells them. Watch the wisdom of God in directing his people. He says, I won't drive your enemies out in a single year because the land would become desolate. And the white animals would become too numerous for you. So little by little, I'll drive them out before you. Until you have increased enough. Watch this church. Until you've increased enough to take possession of the land. So God's telling his people, he's saying all of this promise is yours. Everything that I said, I'll be faithful to complete. Everything that I promised you, I will fulfill my word. He's saying to his people, but he's saying, but the enemies are too numerous for you right now. The wild animals would increase so much. He said, I'm not going to do it all at once because you're not ready for me to do it all at once. He said, I'm not going to give you everything that I promised all at the same time because my timing is not your timing. And I understand the pitfalls that would come. You're not even a good, you're not even a, a large enough people to fill the cities that I would give you if I did it all at once. He said, until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. Until you've increased enough. And I think there's sometimes for some of us, God has placed promise into our life. God has spoken things to us. God has plans and purposes for our race. Times of seasons of blessing, times of seasons of influence. I think oftentimes what he may be saying to many of us, myself included, is if I did it all at once, You don't have the moral character and you don't have the infrastructure to handle it. You wouldn't be able to step into it. And the thing that I'm using to bless you, if I did it when you're not ready for it, would actually be the thing that destroyed you. If I brought all of that influence and all of that leadership and all of that promise and whatever it is you're praying for, you feel God has spoken to you. If I brought all of that at once, you're not ready to have that. But if we trust him with our pace... We say, God, I'm going to trust you in those seasons. I'm going to celebrate the victories in other people's lives and I'm going to wait for what God has for me. Then he said, all those promises that I've already, all of that I'm still going to do. I will fulfill my word. He is faithful, everybody. It may not be in our timing, but he is faithful to fulfill his promises. We have to trust him with our pace. Little by little, he's saying. And so listen to me, let me just pastor you for a minute. I know it's not easy to hear. I promise you, if you have a mentor or somebody that speaks into your life, it's not an easy thing to hear. But let me just pass you for just a moment. That you may not be ready for what God wants to do in your life right now. That you may need to grow. And honestly, this is a message. If you're single and you're looking at all these marriages and you're thinking, well, I'd love to have it. But maybe you're not the person that the person you're looking for is looking for. Maybe God wants to grow you in this season. 
Because if you go into that marriage emotionally unstable, you will be an emotional vampire to your spouse and you will wreck that marriage. You hear me, everybody? God needs to grow you. Maybe you need to learn in a few areas. Maybe you need to begin to grow, but you always fix your eyes on Jesus because he's the one who's developing that inside of you. You're praying for something. You're saying, Lord, we've been praying for this. God, we've been praying for this season in our family. Oh God, I've been praying for this season at work. Oh God, I've been praying for this season in my leadership or in my giftings or my ability. God, I've just been, I've been praying, but I'm going to put it before the Lord and I'm going to trust him with my pace. And I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus that I know that I'm going to run the race he's called me to run. And begin to say, I know maybe God hasn't brought it yet. I'm going to celebrate in your life, but I know it has nothing to do with what God is doing in mine. Because my identity is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. That's where I draw my strength. It's where I find my foundation. It's where I draw my identity in this life is from my Savior. It's not in anybody else. It's not in any other thing. It's not in anybody else's success or failure. It's not in any other thing that I would fix my eyes on. I fix them on Jesus. I promise you, if you draw your identity from that, it will create the foundation for every other relationship in your life. Every head bowed, every eye closed today as we pray. Father, I pray right now, God, that you would begin to teach us how to get our eyes off of those around us, how to get our eyes off of the stuff, how to get our eyes out of our technology, how to fix our eyes on you. I pray right now, God, that we would find our confidence in Christ. And I want to take a moment and just pray over our relationships today. Because I think too often times we're taking our cues from those around us. We're taking our cues from our culture or from our technology or from someone else's lives. I want to pray that we would break free of the comparison trap. That we would find our identity in Jesus alone. Before I pray that prayer though, I know there are those of you who have come today or you're watching online and you are far from God. You feel like God is a million miles away. And maybe you're trapped in that trap of comparison. Maybe you're looking around and you feel like a failure because everybody's going further and faster than you. And you felt the pain and the failure that comes from that moment. So I want to pray with you today. If that's you, you say, I feel like God is a million miles away from me right now. I feel like he's far. If that's you today, I want you to know that he has never left you. That he is waiting on you and that he wants you. And maybe you've never heard that before today. I want you to know that God loves you. That he's not waiting to judge you. He's not waiting to drop the hammer on you, but he wants you. That Jesus Christ came to this world to set you free. That he died on a cross, but then he rose again. The Bible says so that anyone could call on the name of the Lord and be saved. That anyone, that includes you, that anyone, I don't care how far you are, that anyone, I don't care what you've done, that anyone could call on the name of Jesus and be saved. And right now it would be my honor to pray that prayer of surrender with you. You say, I want to come back. I'm tired of living out on my own. I'm tired of running from God. I want to come home. Let today be the day you make that decision. And I warn you, it's a decision of surrender. But I promise you, he will make you brand new. He'll bring purpose into your life. He'll make the plan and show you the race that he's called you to run. So that's you right now. I just want to pray with you. 
I'm not in this to embarrass you. I'm not going to make you stand or come to the front. There are other times to go public with your faith in Christ, but right now you have to make that decision. Right now you have to surrender your life. But I promise you, if you do, he will make you brand new. He'll free you. The Bible says the old will pass away, the new will come. And so if that's you today, you want to pray that prayer. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you the words. You have to pray them and you have to surrender in your own heart. And all the church, we're going to pray it with you. Nobody prays alone, but say these words. Jesus, forgive me of all of my sin, of all my mistakes. I surrender to you. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose again. And I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, I'm thankful for this church. God, these incredible people that we have a unique race to run. God, I thank you for each and every person that you have a race for them to run. God, I ask you right now, give us the strength to get our eyes off of the world around us and to fix them on Jesus. God, that you would continue to reveal what you have for us to do in this kingdom. God, that you would continue to reveal the purposes and the plans you have for us. But help us, Lord, to run our race. Lord, that we wouldn't look on Facebook. We wouldn't look on Instagram. We wouldn't draw our identity from anyone else but you. That we would fix our eyes on you. Lord, I pray that you would eliminate competition from our relationships in this church. I pray, God, you would eliminate competitions from our relationships with others in our family, in our lives, in our relationships. God, but you would help us to run this race, Lord, as one church, as one body, as one family. God, give us those relationships to encourage one another, to build one another up, not to tear each other down. Help us to fix our eyes on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We give you all of the glory and all of the praise. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's church said amen and amen. Come on, let's give God praise for what he's done today.